This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. I think I needed the introduction, but very happy to be here in Philadelphia. My father is from Philadelphia, St. John's Parish in, in Maniunk, so uh, I feel like I have a hardwired connection to Philadelphia, but I know that there are people from other dioceses here too, so I uh, want to acknowledge all of you. Unlike the other speakers that you've heard today, um, I am not going to tell you anything you don't already know and that you couldn't tell me. Um, and I want to acknowledge that right up front. A few years ago, um, we, my associate and co-author Tom Corcoran, who is also from Philadelphia, by the way, um, sort of came to understand something that we had been experiencing for years when it came to our parish staff and our parish leaders. It's what Pastor Bill Hybels calls vision leaks. Vision leaks. You can pour your vision, mission, purpose, and values into your very best people, and they get it for a while, and then they don't. They don't get it, they lose it, they forget it, they become absorbed in their own stuff. They don't even think about it, and that's because vision leaks. So I'm not offering any original insights or deep thoughts or anything you don't already know. I just want to pour some, some vision back into your cups as you take time today for renewal and growth in the important work that you do. We know that not everything that we have to say today applies to your setting or represents transferable principles. It has to be reinterpreted in your setting, your community, and your culture. That said, we suspect most all of what we have to offer is going to have some application. One other, one other caveat as I begin. What, what I offer today, what we offer, comes from our experience and what we know right now. And we could have said it differently this time last year, and doubtlessly we'll be saying it differently this time next year. It is a parish is a work in progress, as you know. Many of you are here because you had the opportunity to read Rebuilt. It's been really interesting and a lot of fun to launch a, a book. Uh, my associate Tom and I have been working on promoting it that means a lot of travel to different parts of the country, which I have never been to before. Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, Oakland, California, Rochester, New York, Washington, D.C., Dallas, Denver, Detroit, Milwaukee, Miami, Louisville, Las Vegas. There was a church ministry convention in Las Vegas this summer, believe it or not. There we were at Harris Hotel, appearing nightly between Cirque du Soleil and Donnie and Marie. Well, it's been interesting and fun, but let's face it, that kind of travel gets old fast. Most of the time, Tom and I travel together, and help. it helps to have a traveling companion, but it still gets old and becomes a hassle. A couple of months ago, we were in Chicago. We flew out on a Monday evening, we had meetings all day Tuesday, and then the plan was to fly home on Tuesday evening. Our flight was due to leave around 5 p.m. We got to the airport with plenty of time to spare, but that time of day, of course, the, air, 
airport is mobbed, but there was something else going on at that airport that day. A sort of buzz started in the terminal. Hard to say exactly what was going on, but something was going on for sure. There was an agitation, a disruption, a disorder, growing and increasing uncomfort. Sensing the mood, I started to snoop around. First thing I noticed, our flight was delayed by two hours, and that was disappointing. But worse was to come. Even as I was staring at that display, as if staring at it would change the number, the number changed, and we were suddenly three hours delayed, and then four hours delayed. I was appalled. I went running to tell Tom the bad news, and then, and then returned. And then I discovered that our flight was no longer four hours delayed. It was indefinitely delayed, as in infinitely delayed. <laughs> and then I noticed something else. Lots of other flights were delayed, too. And more and more flights were being canceled. And very quickly, people being people started a little mini panic, trying to change their flights and get other flights, get out earlier, go to other cities. It turns out we had two other options when it came to flying back to Baltimore that evening. And I raced to the ticket counter to see if we could change as other people were changing. The frantic lady in front of me had come up with the idea that she could fly to, to Cleveland in a flight that was leaving within moments and then get a transfer to Baltimore. And other people around us started clamoring to do the same. So when it came my turn, I looked at the ticket agent in the eyes and I said, can I go to Cleveland too? Forget about Tom, just give me a seat. And she said, you know, you seem like a reasonable person. So I'm going to give you a piece of advice just from me to you. Take a seat and wait for your flight to Baltimore. But you have to choose now because the flight to Cleveland was leaving then. It felt like one of those disaster movies, you know, like War of the Worlds or Day After Tomorrow where the character has to choose what they're going to do and they've got to choose in that very moment. And the choice is a life or death choice. All right, I wasn't facing death, but I was facing Cleveland that day. <laughs> well, anyway, long story short, I sat down, and eventually I got back to Baltimore much, much later that day. Anyway, my point is this. It's easy to get mixed up, to lose our sense of direction and purpose, and suddenly be unclear about where we're going or what we're doing. So I just want to take a few minutes this afternoon to go back to the basics. Acts of the Apostles says they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the communal life, to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. All came upon everyone and many wonders and signs were being accomplished through the apostles. The Church of Christ, in its earliest, purest, and most exuberant period, the Age of the Apostles, is described in the first chapters of the fifth book of the New Testament. St. Luke, who wrote Acts of the Apostles, tells us how the Holy Spirit began shaping the Church 
through the apostolic ministry. More than any other way, we learn that these efforts were fruitful in two ways. Introducing people to Christ and then helping them to grow into fully devoted followers, that is, disciples of the Lord. And in exactly these ways, they advanced the movement of the kingdom of God in their generation. This is always and everywhere the fundamental and indispensable work of the church, currently fueled by the imperative of the new evangelization. The new evangelization. I was sitting next to a bishop at a conference this past summer. Somebody was talking at great length about the new evangelization. And he leaned over and he whispered to me, you know, nobody knows what that means. <laughs> well, I think that's true. But I also think we're all learning about it together these days. And certainly we can agree. It's about bringing the gospel to those who haven't heard it or need to hear it again. And then it is about helping them to grow into fully devoted disciples of Christ, especially through the Word of God and the Eucharist. Probably nobody disputes that. The difficulty comes when we reach down into the details of building or rebuilding the Church of Christ. The legendary architect Miles My van der Rohe is sometimes credited with claiming that in any building project, the devil is in the details. That's where all of us in church world can begin to look at things very differently. It's also where we can get mixed up about what we're even trying to do. And that's a problem because of the importance of what we're trying to do. Now, if you're going to build anything, anywhere, you need to start somewhere, somewhere specific. You need a building site. Well, parish is a geographical term. It is a location. Parish is a Greek phrase, parochia, which refers to a collection of neighboring buildings. Your parish is a neighborhood. However compact or far-flung far your community, your parish is essentially a neighborhood. And your neighborhood is where you join the Lord in building the movement of the kingdom of God in our generation. To be successful in building, you have to know your parish, because that's your building site. Your parish. Not just your congregation. Your parish actually includes people you don't know people who currently aren't in the pews. Who they are, what they like, what they like, how they spend their time, how they spend their money, what language they speak, what is their culture. Most critically, what do they think about God, faith, and the church, if in fact they think of such things at all. We don't know anything about your parish, but we can tell you about ours. Church of the Nativity is basically the 21093 zip code, a choice slice of North Baltimore County. Maryland is called the land of pleasant living, and it must be because of places like our parish. There are lots of things that we could tell you about our community that might interest you, but here's something that might surprise you. The majority of people in our parish do not 
go to church. And they're Catholic. They're Catholic, and they don't go to church. They don't like the experience. They don't understand the Eucharist, and they're not interested in learning why they should. And no amount of wishing it were otherwise or demanding that it be different will change that fact. On the other hand, humbly learning about why they've left and what might bring them back is what we need to be about if we are going to successfully build in 21093. But what are we building? Churches, right? Kinda, right? At one point, Jesus takes his 12 disciples on a road trip. It's the biggest journey of Jesus' adult life and further afield than any of them have ever gone. They go to an unlikely destination. Caesarea Philippi was a kind of ancient Las Vegas on steroids. The main attraction of this place was a temple located at the entrance to a grotto that, that, that reached down beneath the city. The grotto temple was dedicated to a Greek god named Pan. The cult of worship of this particular god was wild, as in wildly hedonistic and even savage. Locals called the place the Gates of Hades, and with good reason. It was believed to be the entrance to the underworld. It was how you got to hell. Ironically, it was also the source or headwater of the River Jordan. Jesus takes his disciples there not to preach or teach, not to heal anyone or convert a single soul. He takes them there to ask a question. Two questions, really. First question, who do people say the Son of Man is? They have no shortage of answers. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other, in other words, there's a lot of confusion out there about who you are. Then he asks the question he's really interested in, but who do Peter replies, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. This is the first time that any of them gets it right when it comes to understanding who Jesus is. It's a big moment. And Jesus takes advantage of it to make a big announcement. This is one of the biggest announcements of all time. It's the kind of big announcement like God's announcement to Abraham that there is a God. His announcement to Moses that there is a law. His announcement to David that his throne would last forever. His announcement to Mary that he's sending his son. This announcement is like those announcements. It's that big. He says, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build. Now hold on. Because if you grow up in church, you've heard this. You've heard this so many times, you're probably not even listening to this right now. It's easy not to hear it at all. You know this, so of course you know what he's going to say and what he's going to, to build. So let's slow down. If Jesus was going to name the thing that he intended to build, it's, it's reasonable to assume that he would have called it by a traditional name, you know, like synagogue or temple. Hey, guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a temple. But that's not what he says. Instead, he uses this word. It's a very interesting word, a word 
not previously found before in the New Testament. He says, I will build my... Okay, look at it again. I will build my... And the gates of hell, which we just happen to be standing in front of. How cool is that, guys? Will not prevail against it. Jesus says to the disciples, this is the biggest news of all, the biggest news ever. Going forward, this is the plan and the whole plan. For the rest of human history, this is what God is going to be doing and nobody and nothing, not even the gates of Hades, will stop this plan. It's just going to keep on going and growing and going and growing and going and growing and nothing will stop it. That English word, church, is not a translation of the Greek word ekklesia. The Greek word was used to describe assemblies or gatherings of people in a given locale for some specific purpose, usually a civic or community-wide one. Typically, it was used in reference to town hall meetings or the coming together of a city council at city hall for some deliberate purpose that impacts the neighborhood, the parochia, and not just the ecclesia. Here's what it did not refer to, a building. On the other hand, the English word church derives not from the Greek word ecclesia, but rather from the German word kirk, which is a building. Sorry, not trying to show off. I know absolutely no German, and I failed Greek in seminary. I'm just trying to make a point. And there's been confusion and often conflict on this point, and here it is. Christ promised to build an ecclesia, not a kirk. Jesus was God, so he could have done whatever he wanted to do, and he never built a single church. He never raised a single dollar to renovate or, or, or redecorate a church, and he never asked anybody else to do it either. Apparently, he didn't come to build kirks. He came to launch an ecclesia. An ecclesia is a movement. The building project we join him in is not the construction of a building or the maintenance of a museum. It is not a monument to be visited or a destination to be viewed. It's a movement. It's a movement. That means it's got to move. It's a growing movement. That means it's got to grow. A growing movement of growing disciples who are gathering more people who are not disciples to become disciples. This is the church that is so strikingly described in the Acts of the Apostles. A dynamic gathering, a powerful movement with a world-changing mission. All too quickly in the course of history, church people start to get in the way. Church people always want to try and control the ecclesia that Jesus is gathering. We want to try and contain it in the kirks that we build for ourselves. The ecclesia is messy. Kirk people want to clean it up and make it neat. The ecclesia is unpredictable. Kirk people want to systematize it and codify it and generally make it entirely predictable. The ecclesia is a work in progress. Kirk people want a finished structure. 
here people want a building. The Ecclesia is a building project. And this isn't ancient history. It goes on in parishes everywhere, every day. We've done it in our parish for more wasted years than we'd like to admit. On the other hand, when we give building a try, it won't be easy. And nobody will thank you for it initially. But go ahead and do it anyway. At your next parish council meeting, just put aside the usual agenda and ask one of these questions. Are we making a measurable difference in our community or simply serving our members? Are we mobilized for mission or insisting on business as usual? Are we simply meeting or are we moving? Are we here to preserve our broken systems and our way of doing things or are we willing to put all those things aside and go where God is blessing? Are we a kirk or an ecclesia? Our journey took off when we humbled ourselves and started to learn from others. Eventually we did the obvious thing, which was not so obvious to us. We looked at successful churches, intentionally growing, obviously healthy churches, even if that meant turning to Protestants. We started, we stumbled into this, we started at a place that, that we had never heard of, that nobody had ever heard of at the time, that everyone knows now, Saddleback Church in Orange County, California, which is Rick Warren's church. Remember the first time that we went out there, which is about 10 years ago now, we felt scared to go. We were afraid to be outed as Catholics in an evangelical setting. Being on, on their campus at Saddleback felt like being on a different planet. It was overwhelming. I remember parking the car and approaching what I assumed was the church building only to discover it was a nursery building. It was big and new and beautiful and totally dedicated to Sunday school for nursery students. On the other hand, when we finally made our way over to the church, it was big for sure, but entirely plain. It was just a Walmart with chairs. In my experience of church world, big churches meant fancy churches, churches with fancy expensive finishes, but there was nothing fancy here. But it wasn't even primarily the building or the campus, it was the people. There was just something different about the people of Saddleback Church than my church. They were so friendly and happy, and happy to see me. We walked through the front door, and we were so warmly greeted by these people there that I exited out a side door and circled back around to come in again and see if I could experience that again. I've been in church my whole life. I, I lived for six years in Rome. I have never seen people this happy before in church. What are these people so happy about? Well, along with Saddleback, we, we studied some other growing, healthy mega churches, Willow Creek in Chicago, Fellowship Church in Dallas, North Point in Atlanta. We learned several lessons from those churches. I'd like to share with you three 
of what I consider the most vital of those lessons this afternoon. First, we changed our focus from church people to unchurch people. We changed our focus from church people to unchurch people. Two, we prioritized the weekend experience, that's what we call it, above all our other efforts. And three, we are all about moving church people into action. First, focusing on unchurched people. Change in our church came when we took the focus off the church people and thought about creating an environment unchurched people would actually want to be a part of. If you think about it, in your community, if it's anything like ours, there are far more people who aren't going to church than are going to church. Those unchurched people represent your growth opportunity. We began to focus on the unchurched person in our community. And we began by describing him. What does he look like? Being in Timonium, we call him Timonium Tim. Tim is a good guy. He grew up Catholic and was probably confirmed Catholic, but once his mom stopped making him go to church, he stopped going. What he knows about Catholicism is a muddled mess of what he thinks he remembers from confirmation class and what he learned from the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> Tim has a, a stressful life, especially during the week. He's got a long commute. He's got a very high-profile job. He, has, he finds himself driving his kids in different directions on different days. He's racked up a bunch of debt because he's living way beyond his means. That is a source of conflict with his wife. On Sundays, Tim just wants to sit back and relax, which means that he can be found at Raven Stadium on game day or at Baltimore Country Club when the weather's nice. But guess where Tim never is on a Sunday morning? At church. It doesn't even occur to him to consider it as an option. If you could sit him down and ask him to reflect on why, he would probably give you some variation of the explanation. It's boring and bad, and it's completely irrelevant to my life. When we evaluated our parish, we realized that we were all those things to Tim. And beyond that, we weren't even very welcoming to him. We did not have a great experience. As church, we're still under the impression that if we open the doors, they will come. That if we build it, they will come. But they're not coming anymore. And that day is done. Second, I'm just trying to go through these very quickly. We prioritize that weekend experience for Tim. The weekend is the greatest opportunity to have an impact on Tim. And if people have a bad experience, if Tim has a bad experience, then there's really nothing else that we can do for him that is going to change that. As you know, if Tim goes to a restaurant and the food is bad, he doesn't really care about how authentic the cuisine is or how well they handle their, their books. 
He's not going back to that restaurant again. Same for us. The Mass, of course, is the source and summit of our faith. It deserves our very best efforts. But it's important to note that Tim, like all unchurched people, don't see the inherent value of it. And if the Eucharist was enough, all our churches would already be full. We have to help people learn the value of the Eucharist by giving them a great experience, one that is not boring, that is not bad, and that is not irrelevant to them. And we break that down into three basic pieces, music, message, and ministers. And I wish that I could spend the rest of the afternoon talking on each of those categories, but I'll just try to briefly go over each of them. First, music. I'll spend a little more time on music because it's more fun. Focusing on the weekend from the perspective of Tim means it's the music. The weekend experience should form a kind of transportation, taking the participant on an emotional, intellectual, and ultimately spiritual journey to the higher realm of God. The United States Catholic Conference of, of Bishops in their document, Sing to the Lord, says this, God has bestowed upon his people the gift of song. God dwells within each human person in the place where music takes its source. Indeed, God, the giver of song, is present whenever his people sing his praises. A cry deep within our being, music, is a way for God to lead us to higher things. We like to say that music is the water on which our weekend experience sails. Music does what words alone cannot do. It is capable of expressing a dimension of meaning and feeling that words alone cannot convey. More than any other element in the church's weekend experience, it is the music. It is the music that can touch and change people's hearts for better or worse. Historically, at our parish, music was a huge problem. As is typical in many places, our program included some musical options in the course of the weekend. Three masses were designated as organ and cantor. One as the choir mass. One was what they called the folk mass. And blessedly, one was the quiet mass. The folk mass was far and away more popular than any of the other musical choices, perhaps because it was the easiest to listen to or the easiest to tune out. The group tried their best, but they struggled. Their presentation was flawed, and the music they played was dated and uninteresting. At the other masses, the music was worse. <laughs> far, far worse. Many of the choir members were more convinced of their skill than they had reason to be. <laughs> the accumulated sound was grievous. Most of the cantors were, well, prima donnas in clear performance mode. The organist was a wonderful person who struggled mightily with a poorly designed organ. Traditional hymns, as well as recent additions to the sacred music compendium, were simply slaughtered 
mass after mass, week after week, and no one sang. I mean, no one. If you sang, we knew you were a visitor. <laughs> and we stared at you until you shut up or went away. <laughs> Not surprisingly, on many weekends, the most popular weekend mass was the early one with no music. Early on, we had a town hall meeting to listen to the range of concerns we'd inherited. While most people were generally apathetic toward the parish, that evening turned into a virtual riot of bitter complaint all about the music. And we had to agree with much of what was said. They were right. We had terrible music. And it made the weekend experience terrible too. And that made people angry. People came to our church and left angry. We wouldn't have gone to our church if we weren't paid to be there. <laughs> Want to know what we did about our problem? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because we didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. If you don't, in, if you don't count the parishioners as, as anybody. <laughs> so we did nothing for two years. Eventually, of course, we did the right thing. We made the hard choices. We begged God to send us the right people and we, we used them. Music has the greatest potential to reach people and because it has such, it's such a great opportunity, it will be a difficult one to get right. Second piece of the weekend experience is your message. That's what we call the homily. The second component of the weekend experience is the message. Proverbs 18.21 says, words are powerful. Words change people. And when we're relying upon God's word, it has an incredible power. For the unchurched person who doesn't value the Eucharist and doesn't understand why they should, the message is going to be where they are fed. I don't know about you, but I have talked to so many former Catholics who have decamped to go to evangelical churches. They have walked away from the Eucharist. And when you ask them why, in my experience, almost universally, they say, because I felt like I wasn't being fed. How sadly ironic is that? But the message is where the unchurched person is going to be fed. The third element of the weekend experience is going to be the ministers. Ministers create the energy uh, at church. They are, in that old expression, the there, there. They make our church a welcoming environment, a destination. When people are describing why they join our church, they don't say it's because of the pastor or what a wonderful homilist I am. They don't talk about our church building. They don't talk about our programs and services. The number one thing they talk about is our ministers. What experience they had coming onto our campus. So we put a lot of attention and energy into teams of ministers who are tasked with creating a welcoming environment, parking team, greeters, host ministers. In our parish, which is a suburban parish, people tend to bring their cars with them when they come to church. So we have to take care of their cars if we're going to take care of them. Parking ministers help them find a parking 
spot in an efficient way, and they're the first line of greeting for that weekend experience. Then at the doors, there are greeters who smile and greet them some more, now in a spoken way. And then there are host team ministers inside who can assist them with finding a seat, with finding their way to programs, or whatever it is that they need. We also have information ministers in the lobby at the information desk. We have a cafe for hospitality and fellowship following mass and more ministers there to interact with people in a, a, a more expansive kind of way. The point is that these teams work together in a, in a, in a kind of deep and wide way to make sure that everybody who comes onto our campus is greeted and has the opportunity to interact with somebody from church. Aside from this range of hospitality ministry that uh, we focus a great deal on, the other huge ministerial piece comes in our children's programs. One of the important things to note about our children's programs is that they are available at all masses. You don't have to think about when is that program. Are our programs available at all of our masses? We, we call our programs for kids aged six months to grade five, children's programs, and then from grade five to 12, our student programs. But our children's programs are available at all our masses. We call them play, worship, and learn environments, where progressively they are being introduced to the Eucharist and to the contours of what it means to worship at the Eucharist, but in age-appropriate ways for children aged six months to grade five. So the third element that we wanted to mention today in changing our focus was all about motivating church people to move and to act. You know, so often we challenge unchurched people and then, and then we comfort insiders. We coddle insiders. When we do that, we get it exactly wrong. I mean, we should be loving our parishioners for sure and taking care of them pastorally is our a primary responsibility, but we need to challenge church people. And we need to make ourselves accessible and welcoming to the unchurch. We challenge our church people to get up out of the pew and serve in a ministry. Obviously, all those ministries that we talk about require hundreds of people, so we have a lot of things that need to be done, and we preach that invitation to join a ministry all the time. But here too, it's all about accessibility. We have to make our ministries accessible. One reason that we had so few volunteers at our parish was because the commitment was so huge and high. You know, come and teach fifth grade religious education and, and, and just keep doing it until Jesus comes again in his glory. We look for that kind of commitment from somebody who's never, you know, volunteered at all. Instead, set the bar much lower 
when it comes to inviting people in to ministry. Give them a simple task that they can undertake, like opening the door and saying hello. You want to be a parking minister? Here's all you need to know. You can do this. We set our ministers up for success, too, by making sure that they have everything they need in terms of supplies and, and assistance. We make sure that we thank them and that we're serving right there alongside of them. Another piece of challenging our church people to grow comes in our small group program, which we talk about in our book as well. Small groups are where our great big church gets small and up close and, and personal. Small groups are our delivery system for pastoral care. I think I heard in one of the earlier talks somebody was saying about how, how do these, these you know, uh, uh, parish ministers do everything that's expected of them? Well, we know that we can't do everything that's expected of us, and certainly not everything we want to do. But small groups can provide peer pastoral ministry, one to the other, in a way that your parish staff, however large it will ever grow, could never do. So I could say a lot more about that too, but I just want to say a final word of sort of encouragement to, to all of you. I believe that God has great vision for, for our, our parishes, for your parish, and for, for mine too. But these, these days are, are, are difficult days in, in many ways. No, um, we've seen people walk away from the church in droves. And many of those people are our own family members and, and friends and people that we have ministered to faithfully over the years. And it can be heartbreaking. You are... You and I are here, and we do what we do because that bothers us. And I think that's true for a growing number of Catholics across this country, at least the ones that I meet. The book of Esther in the Bible takes place during the heartbreaking exile of the Jews, a difficult period for them. At this point in the story, they've lost their homeland and their freedom. They've lost their beloved temple. But worse still is in store for them because an evil counselor to the ruler of the land, the king of Persia, plots the extermination of the entire Jewish people. Meanwhile, God raises up a simple Jewish girl and places her in the unlikely position of queen of Persia. And then he plants a vision in Esther to save his people. He comes in the word of a friend who tells her she must go to the king and intercede, a dangerous thing for even the queen to do. And her friend tells her this, Esther 4.14, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Of course, she gets to work and literally saves the day. God placed her in a position of influence and authority. 
and gave her the vision for exactly the time and circumstances that she was in. Who knows? God has placed you exactly where you are, in positions of influence and authority, in important positions, wherever you are, for such a time as this. God bless you in your great work. Thanks.